Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Michael Harper, who is the second trumpet in the Jacksonville Symphony. He won that uh, relatively recently, right? This, you just finished your first or your second season? One and a half seasons. One and a half seasons. So he just started that, just like me. He's at the beginning of his career, doing really, really well. Um, I met him at Northwestern. He was a freshman when I was a grad student, and um, uh, it was great to see him grow and uh, he went to CIM after that, correct, for grad school? Mm -hmm. And then how long after grad school was it until you won your job? After CIM, I went to Colburn for a year and a half to study with Jim Wilt, Mr. Clean. <laughs> and I, I left Colburn halfway through my second year to start in Jacksonville. Oh, okay, cool. So out of school, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Michael is a product, uh, similarly to me, I suppose, a product of the... Um, successful Butler Geyer Studios, but clearly other influences have been a big help to him as well in being successful. And um, one interesting thing about Michael that probably a lot of people don't know, they might just see that here's Michael, he's young, he's successful. Man, I wish I was that guy, you know, he has it all. Um, one p thing people might not know is that he had a an injury, our freshman, your freshman year, correct? Mm -hmm. And I think it caused you to take at least a semester off of playing. Was it more than that or around, about like that? It was an entire summer, but the effects lasted maybe, maybe two whole years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so this is something I wanted him to talk about because clearly he's doing really, really well. And if you didn't know that about him, you would never think for a second that he would have gone through something like that. And I think his story can be, um, I guess, of encouragement to maybe some people who feel like they're dealing with some physical things while playing or mental things to know that uh, for many people, their path to success is not a straight line. Absolutely not. Yeah, and they maybe wouldn't do everything exactly the same as they as it ended up happening. But as we talk, I'm gonna you know hopefully ask some questions and we'll find out kind of what he maybe learned from this process and how he feels like it maybe even benefited him to go through something like that. And um, so with all that being said, why don't you take it away? Uh, he's made some notes here. We might open up his computer and and uh, check that out if he's, uh, you know, this is pretty open-ended. I just would like to get as much of the story as possible. So take it away with uh, maybe where you were at freshman year and kind of how you may have gotten to the point where an injury uh, was happening. Yes. Well, at Northwestern, my freshman year, I was running with a fast crowd, which was super inspiring to be around all these guys in studio class every week, every day. Um, I think I somewhat jumped off the deep end in terms of <laughs> applying for tons of summer festivals and trying to practice all this stuff and keep up with the competition, which was running pretty fast. I, I took a little bit of time off over winter break. So first, first semester went fine, winter break. Maybe played a little bit too less, which is everybody does. They go home for Christmas. Yeah. Came back January 3rd or whatever, hit the ground running and was applying to a ton of summer festivals. I was recording tape for PMF, practicing, I think it was Tomasi, second and third movement and some other hard stuff. 
And I don't know exactly what the tipping point was, and I probably never will. But I suspect I was playing too much, probably not warming up methodically and systematically, and just putting my, my body under too much strain. I was in brass quintet. I was in brass ensemble. I was signing up for everything I could do. And kind of towards the end of January, I noticed kind of a, a, a pain or a, not a, not a numbness, but a, um, a strain in my upper left lip right underneath the mouthpiece. And it didn't really get better and it started to get worse and it started to hurt and affect my playing and things just didn't feel normal. So I didn't know what to do. I sort of took a day off, came back the next day, didn't feel any better. Mr. Geyer, who was my teacher at the time, said, oh, take four Advil, call me in the morning, and that'll be, that'll be $50. <laughs> that didn't really help either. Um, I didn't have a lot of solid advice, and no one really knew what to tell me. Um, the, the situation didn't really get better, and I kept having to call subs for sim band rehearsal, for brass ensemble rehearsal, having to duck out of things. It felt horrible, but I just was experiencing this pain in my lip that I, I couldn't play. I couldn't play with. Um, a guy who was a sophomore at the time, a year older than me, Mike Hawes, he was going through a kind of a similar lip injury. There actually kind of was, there were many Northwestern students who had gotten injured at the time and, or, or a few years prior. Mike Hawes was going to see this lip doctor in Toronto called Simon McGrail, who I tagged along with him and I went there. And this was about maybe a month or so after I had have been having these pains. This lip doctor, he, kind of, he felt my embouchure as I, as I formed it, as I tried to buzz with his gloved fingers inside my mouth. Mm. And he was somehow able to determine that it wasn't a muscle tear, it was just a muscle stretch or a strain. And he said, it'll take time to recover, but, it, but there's, there's good news, you'll be able to keep playing somewhat, but he gave me a bunch of exercises to do. I guess I can't maybe show you them on the podcast, but I, one of them involved kind of massaging my lip or stretching my lips, kind of inflating my mouth with air, all sorts of exercises and things. And I don't know if they really helped, but the situation didn't really get much better my whole, the whole rest of freshman year. And long story short, I ended up deciding to take the summer off because it just didn't get better. I would make a week or two of improvements and it would start hurting again. I would get this kind of tinging feeling in my upper left lip underneath the mouthpiece. Um, so I decided to take the whole summer off until the pain and discomfort went away. And it was extremely difficult. I mean, I even went, I was going to go to a festival that summer I had to cancel. I was going to go to the Spoleto Festival. I did go to the Chosen Vale two week trumpet seminar, which was fun, but I didn't even bring my horns. I just audited the whole thing. Oh, interesting. Le learned a lot. Yeah. Um, I definitely tried to keep my head above water this time and still learn. I still had lessons weekly and I, I went in there and just picked Mr. Geyer's brain with questions. I even had a lesson with Chris Martin. I don't even know what I played in that, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned something. So I, I tried to keep a positive attitude through all this, which was really difficult. But um, I, I think I still learned during this whole process. Um, what direction do we want to go now? Or um, so I guess the next question would be, um, how long did it take you before you really started to see some, 
progress in the right direction. Like you said, it took about two years, all said and done. Yeah. When did you feel like you were um, coming around to um, getting, I'm going to rephrase that question. I'm just going to edit that. Um, so the next thing I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, is you, you now know that you are injured or it doesn't feel right and there's a tear, which sounds like it kind of amounts to the same thing as like, like if you pull a hamstring versus if you tear a hamstring, mm-hmm. they both hurt. But I think one of them heals kind of back to normal and one of them like has some probably longer lasting implications. Yeah, I think the muscle tear is where this guy, Simon McGrail, would actually go in there and stitch up your lips. So that's what happened a to muscle. Mike, right? I think, yeah. I think Mike had to have actual surgery on his lip. I yeah. don't know. Maybe he'll... And maybe. several players have done that, and some have recovered and some have not. That guy named Denver Dill has recovered very well, and actually he and I spoke on the phone throughout this whole process, and he was very helpful. Oh, that's... Uh, yeah, so that's the other thing that's interesting to me is this happening to you when you're like 18 or 19 years old, you're like clearly not equipped to deal with this, right? Like you have no... I mean, no one that age would have any idea how to deal with this because we've just played the trumpet and we don't think about it. But I think many teachers also... Um, this is not something that's in like probably in a method book somewhere. How to, you know, armature changes are there and how to get better at range and dynamics, all those things. Like teachers have had probably many, many chances to experiment with how to get better, but injured students is a whole nother thing. So it's, I guess, basically finally going to see an expert was the thing that made it so you could be like, oh, okay, this is what's actually happening. And he could give it to you. So you're doing these exercises, whether they're helping or not, you're doing these exercises. You're not playing at all during the summer. At what point were you able to come back and play a little bit more regularly and not experience pain? And then from there, hopefully start to make some progress. Yeah. So I took, I think it was 11 weeks off that summer. So do the math, 77 days. And even during that time, in the first few weeks, my lip was still kind of hurting residually. I would even, I would even watch concerts or I see a trumpeter play and my lip would start to hurt just reactively. Oh, weird. <laughs> Which meant that maybe it was sort of not a mental problem, but it was a mental trigger too. Yeah, yeah. I was super in my head about this and I was super down in the dumps and really depressed. And I was thinking I was going to have to quit trumpet or switch majors or something, which nothing is ever as bad as you think it's going to be. And time does heal a lot of things. And even here, sitting here eight years later, I'm, I'm honestly forgetting how horrible of an experience this was to go through when I was seeing all my peers do so well and go to all the festivals and get into excerpt class. And here I was, you know, limping along, getting a sub for Simband. But I think time really does heal a lot of things. And we all want, we all want it now. We, we, we don't want to have to wait for the results, but I think you will have to wait for some of the important results. What I, I wonder if, I mean, I'm not going to ask, I, I would ask, I guess, are you in some ways, are you glad that it happened for various lessons that you learned? I mean, this is like a, a way we can justify or like rationalize pretty horrible things happening to us is if we feel like we learned something from it, then we're like, all right, I guess that makes sense why I went through it. Is there anything you feel like you learned from this experience that you're like, I'm kind of glad actually now and now that you've been successful, you've won a job, you can look back and say, maybe some of the patience that I learned or maybe some of the way I learned to come back, maybe me, you came back more methodically than you were before. Are there any lessons like that that you're glad that you learned from this experience? 
Oh, certainly. And of course, looking back eight years later, it's easy to say, oh, it was all good for me. But I think I certainly did learn a lot about what I need with my routine and all said and done. I think I'm happy this happened and it made me a much more humble person. And I learned a lot. So this brings me to kind of the next half of the story, my sophomore year. So when I started playing again, maybe a few weeks before sophomore year started, I, I came back very methodically very structured. I think I played five minutes a day, twice a day <laughs> when, I, when I came back at first. And then I played five minutes a day, three times a day. And I played seven minutes a day, three times a day, very methodically and just doing easy warmups. I, during this time, I, I'm, I was living in Annapolis. So I went to Baltimore and played or had, saw Dr. Craig Vanderkalk too. And he pointed, pointed me in the direction of David Federley, who has some experience dealing with this. And his, one of his main points was, don't just think about the technique. Don't just try to build geometry back up, but always try to sing. And of course he's an Arnold Jacobs student. So you can really get in your own head when you're trying to think extremely technically about where the lip goes and where the pressure goes and maybe more on bottom lip, blah, 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 bear down on the non-injured side, all yeah, these, all these things. Paralysis by analysis kind exactly. of Exactly. Yeah. So I would end some of those practice sessions just mentally drained because I was thinking so much and not even feeling better. But his advice, which was to always sing, even when you're playing a silly little stamp etude exercise, sing it. And that often helps your approach. Gets your gets yourself out of your mind somewhat. So I came back very methodically and slowly built myself up, you know, very religiously. And whenever I deviated from that schedule, whenever I took a day off to go up to Madison for Halloween weekend. I, I would come back and things wouldn't feel good. Um, so I needed my absolute regular routine. And to this day, I still do a good warm up that's gets me set up for the day. And I really try not to miss any days or do any extra hard days or any extra light days. For me, I figured out that regularity really helps me. That's really interesting. So just regular medium days for you is, is like the key to success. Yeah. And as I've, in the years that have passed, I've maybe deviated a little bit from this, but I, but I know that I need regular medium sized days and a, and a super heavy day. I'm going to pay for it the next day. I mean, we all know that. Right. Well, I, I know I like this a lot um, because in a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, um, and we talked about this last night in terms of like stimulus and what stimulus your chops have felt it's, I think it's very interesting to come back that methodically. It sounds like you found a stimulus that you could do, which for this case would be five minutes a day, two times a day. And you started there. You started with, I want to be able to play the trumpet. Like I want to be able to be successful for a period of time. It doesn't matter if it's two hours or if it's five minutes and then to slowly add to that in some way, what we would call this like in fitness would be like, uh, progressive, it'd be progression. What is the thing? Uh, progressive overload, right? So you're progressively doing a little bit more over time, which I'm sure probably felt like it was happening so slowly at the time. But then probably when you look back three months later to where you started, you would be like, oh my gosh, I've progressed so much because you're going slowly and methodically and like doing it. Was that your experience in that? Yeah. I mean, it was depressingly slow on the day to day to day, I thought, you know, what am I going to, 
what am I going to become a real trumpet player? You know, am I going to have to quit this? But <laughs> over the month, I mean, I, I kept a journal of this and reading, reading through it all this morning, it's easy to skip a month. Oh, full in March, you were feeling this good. And in April, you were feeling better. I mean, but on the day to day, it's, it's tougher. Um, but I, I did want to say, so when I started my sophomore year, I had this kind of aha moment and I realized, Hmm, right before I went home for winter break freshman year, I, I kind of changed my embouchure. I always play off to the right, for those of you who don't know, and staring at myself in these Regenstein practice rooms that had mirrors in them, I thought, you know, I could I could probably have a better, stronger embouchure if I put it right in the middle. Because I had a teacher in middle school who was a real Schluter admirer, and he said, oh, well, Charlie Schluter never got tired because he had multiple embouchures. He would, he would get tired in this spot, and he would move the mouthpiece of few millimeters over and he'd be fresh again. So that planted the seed in my head that you could just move the mouthpiece around with no ramifications. So the middle of my <laughs> freshman year, I started playing in the center, thinking it would achieve some sort of superhuman results. And I think that's what actually caused this whole thing. It was somewhat overused, but it was also playing in my body's the wrong place for my body well, you, to play. Most likely you hadn't, uh, let's assume on the best case scenario, you could have played with it in the center as well. But because off to the side is where you've done all your playing, that's like the set, right? That yeah, is that's used to all. Yeah. So even if you maybe could have done it, trying to play normally, but switching to the center and just playing like normal, that part of your face is not used to or ready for that kind of stress. No, it yeah. had never been worked that, that yeah. way ever. And I don't know why I did this. I was, I was young and stupid. I did the same thing <laughs> when I was in high school. I play out, like my teeth aren't perfectly straight inside my mouth. So my mouthpiece goes, or my horn goes off to the side when I play. I think mine's to the left a little bit. When I was in high school, I'd see videos of this and I'd be like, oh, this is, this is horrible. It looks so horrible. So I would practice standing in front of a mirror, trying to get it to be straight. And then Picture I read perfect. David Hickman's book and he, his like pedagogy book and it said in there, nobody's mouthpiece is straight. You know what I mean? Basically it was like, mm -hmm. this is, has to do with your teeth. It doesn't have to do with you as a player. It has to do with like how your mouth is shaped, where it feels comfortable on your face. And yes, I'm sure changes are necessary for some people, but I mean, for you to be able to succeed at Northwestern and get in on whatever you're playing to begin with, you're probably not having enough issues that you need an embouchure change, right? It was working well enough for me and I should have left well enough alone. But Unless what was Ansel, frustrating right? was that, oh, that's a whole different podcast. Uh, what was frustrating was that I didn't realize this until probably 10 months after it happened. And then at that point, I was so used to playing on the right side that I, it actually, or I was so used to playing in the middle that it was hard to go back to the right oh, side. And I had to actually, I looked at old pictures of me playing the trumpet and realized that it was a different kind of angle. And I actually had changed my grip. Charlie Geyer convinced me to do the Charlie Geyer grip, which is kind of a, a right-handed trumpet hold yeah, right. versus my left-handed. So I actually went back to a left-handed hold and tried to just recreate the environment that I was playing in, basically in high school. And it was tough. It, was, it took me about a month to shift it back to the old way of playing. But that was, that was really what, what helped me. And that's what Interesting. Brought me back to normal, but um, I can't believe that I didn't realize that for ten months. How stupid could I have been? I don't know. I I, I think it's <laughs> interesting, and I think I would love for you to speak on this question. I'm going to ask if you don't mind. 
Um, so do you think a lot of this amateur change thing came from like being at Northwestern and hearing all these great players? Maybe you feel like you're not like, so you're, I got to find something different or something to see if I can find an extra edge or something like that. Do you feel like that caused some of this? You mean being thrown into the deep end? Versus, yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I, I would hear some of the, I just, I think this is an important thing also for people to hear because you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you, you, you heard all these players around, you, you know, guys like Ansel, Matt Barker, it was Anthony Bellino and you and myself, right? Those are, yeah. So all four of you have jobs now, right? I guess that is, that is true. Yeah. So it's like a super talented class, obviously like, like a guy like Ansel came in and he was like, what is going on? Like, how does this guy do this? I mean, he played the Jolivet Concertino first studio class and yeah. I'm still looking for recording that. Cause that was yeah. unbelievable. I remember being <laughs> angry about it because I was like, how dare he do this? Like, how dare he come in? But so we have, you know, all of you guys played incredibly well from our perspective. Also, I was angry. I was like, how do, how are freshmen able to do this in general, you know? But I wonder if for you guys, when you're in the middle of it and you're in the bubble and you're constantly surrounded by these people who play incredibly well, but we're always looking also at what are our deficiencies and everybody else does it so much better. Like now, what are our strengths? We can hold that high. We're only, you know, constantly digging at our weaknesses that I wonder if that might be caused you to even question like what your approach was in the first place. Cause other than that, like, I wonder why you would want to try to change your, what you were doing with your embouchure, unless it's really just like a, it looks weird. It, it wasn't just a superficial, it looks weird. I mean, I, I think I, needed I thought that I needed to be better and I think my embouchure was good enough for me and I could have achieved whatever I wanted to yeah. on that embouchure but I wanted to get in there and mess with things and try and try and fix and who am I <laughs> who am I to think that I know how the mechanics of the body work obviously I went totally down the wrong path sure but now you know that now you can when you're a teacher and you have students that are struggling like you can encourage them in a whole different way than like even I can right because you can say, look, I've made this huge mistake in my career where I thought this was going to be the answer and it ended up hurting me more than it helped me. And I learned a lot from it. I just think it's encouraging for all people to hear because there's going to be more than just you who deal with this, right? It's going to be more than you who just that you're out of school where you feel like there's a lot of people who play really well and you want to try to be able to keep up and you got to be able to play better and you're looking for whatever extra edge it is. And for most people, it's just time, right? This was Ansel's thing too. When he decided he was talking about doing an embouchure change because he was, I remember he was saying he didn't feel consistency was as good as he wanted it to be. He could do so many things well, but I think like in the upper register, he didn't feel as confident or as comfortable. And it's just, I think it's cause he did so many things so well that this thing that wasn't as good, he was like, there must be something wrong. And to me, it was just, you're 19. Like some of these things take some time to build up mm -hmm. and having that perspective. I think even hearing someone else say that would have been fine to just like wait and to work and, and maybe more methodically, or maybe you could have added some of that stuff before you got injured and that would have made a big difference. But for a lot of people, just time and, and smart playing is going to fix it. There's not always just a magic pill, right? Does, does that mm -hmm. make sense? What I'm, what I'm getting at here? Yeah. I mean, I, once I figured out that I needed to just go back to the regular embouchure that I was, I, I began on, I think that was, that was the road to recovery. Obviously, even after that point, it still took time to get back. I mean, I think I played the rest of my sophomore year and I was still recovering quote unquote, but I was, I was gaining strength and getting better. 
And the the biggest the biggest leap in my improvement was when I went home for the summer between sophomore and junior years, and I finally said, I'm tired of being like an underling or tired of being, you know, oh, like the the comeback player. I want to come back junior year and be as strong as anybody else. And I, I made a plan to do a recital at the end of the summer at home. And I had kind of a, a 10 week or a 12 week program. And I, the same way I came back with the five minutes, eight minutes, I kind of developed a practice plan for that recital to be able to play the Jolve Concertino, uh, Nap, Napoli, Belstead, and a couple other difficult things. And so I think having goals and making a, a plan and ramping up to it and having maybe maybe weekly check-ins where I'll be able to play it at you know 80 or I'll be able to triple tongue the section or whatever, having goals like that really helped keep, keep that summer still to date the most productive summer I've ever had. And it's the only summer I didn't go to a festival also. Yeah. Or actually, yeah, one of the few, but yeah. So it was extremely productive and that's what I think got me back and I started junior year and did the same recital again and felt felt strong and just felt just like normal finally. Yeah, and then from there on, you're just like a normal guy at a school instead of like the injured <laughs> guy. And a normal guy with a much stronger routine and no knowing what I need to do to get myself set up for the day in terms of my warm up. My my warm up got much more thoughtful of yeah. this whole process. And I think it's just cool to me to hear that. Um, there are, there were some positives that came from such a kind of a not great experience, you know, and that in a lot of ways, it's good that although that it happened, it didn't seem like it was long lasting. You know what I mean? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, a year or a year and a half of down, is not that much, right? I mean, it, it seems like it in the time, of course, but when you look back eight years later, you know, you've been playing, you've been killing it for years now, you know? Yeah. I mean, I even thought about not going back to school before I started sophomore year. I thought, you know, why should I pay for this school if I'm not at a hundred percent? And, and my dad convinced me, he said, no, 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 go back to school. You're going to learn things. And even though I was still recovering, still like not able to play, you know, five hours of high C all day. I, I got so much out of my lessons with everyone and my experience. And actually it was a blessing in disguise because if I, if I had left school, I would have not had as much time with Barbara and Charlie because they yeah. actually ended up leaving before my senior year. So I think you can't put your life on hold until you're 100% lined up and ready to go. You just got to Give it all you got, even if it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's a good motto for basically anything, you know? Um, And then, yeah, like I, like I was saying at the beginning of the episode, now you've progressed to a point where you, you know, you went to Tanglewood and now you have a job and you're, you're doing well in auditions and stuff like that. And it's just, now you're living this life that has benefited from going through that, but you're certainly not, I wouldn't say you're defined by this thing that happened. You know, I feel like there's oftentimes something like this can happen and somebody doesn't bounce back because either they're not willing to really look at themselves and what's going on, or they're just like kind of, kind of understandably so beat down enough by the thing that it's just hard to come back. So it's understandable for you to have, you know, try to maintain a positive attitude to help move you through that. What am I going to learn from this? Applying those lessons you learned probably are the things that invariably are what led you to your success now. 
I would think. Yeah, I would definitely say. I mean, thinking back, I was really down in the dumps, but I, I kept a little lip injury journal. I, I wrote in it almost every day and I was reading it this morning. And it's funny because my memories of how depressed I was during this don't correspond to the positivity I saw in that journal where I was saying, you know, things are getting better. Or the general vibe of that was was better. So maybe even just putting down on paper a little more positive thoughts can somehow affect your outlook. And I, I had a I had a great time in Northwestern aside from aside yeah. from all this this trumpet stuff. It was a good place to be and it was a positive place to be and there was so much good stuff happening there. Um, so surround yourself with that positivity, I think. Well, I think that's good advice for something like an embouchure change in general too, where it doesn't come about because you're actually like injured and you have to figure this out, but there's just something not going right and you have to move the mouthpiece around. And then you, it's essentially the same thing. You're starting over, right? But yeah, writing down positive things in a journal or surrounding yourself with people that are encouraging of you, I'm sure can make the process a little bit more manageable and, of course, yeah. and doable. So uh, well, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything else that you can think of that would be useful for people to hear? I mean, there's more details to the story, the ups and downs, but I, I don't think I have anything else I really want to add. I think I mostly told the story. Sweet. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. And so people can kind of hear it. And, uh, you know, maybe it's an interesting topic that not a lot of people talk about. So well, if, I, if I could add one sure. thing in, in this whole process, most of my teachers and my my colleagues and everybody at school with me hadn't really hadn't ever been through an injury or didn't know what advice to give me but through this experience i kind of found a network of a lot of people who had been injured and had recovered and actually i think that there's a surprisingly large number of players who have gotten injured and dealt with it and got better i mean i was talking on the phone i said with denver dill and other people, Lucinda Lewis wrote a book. There's a lot of people out there. It's almost become, I almost feel like it's almost a taboo to admit to having gotten injured. And I feel like that's probably wrong. I feel like being open about what our experiences is probably the better way to do things. And for me to find out that there had been so many players who had gotten hurt, many of them who've gotten hurt, who got hurt much worse than me, and many of them who had gotten better and actually recovered fully was inspiring. So to find a network of other people was, was crucial for me at that point. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm happy if this opens up the conversation, uh, if it's able to open the conversation for one person, right. Who has gotten injured or doesn't know where to go and looks for some encouragement. I feel like it's totally worth it to put it out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, like I said, I appreciate you being open and, um, if there's, I mean, Basically, are you willing, if there's somebody out there currently right now who's listening to this is dealing with something like that, are you willing to like, is there a way somebody might be able to contact you so they can start finding that network or maybe you're their network? Is there a way that you would prefer they contact you? Of course. Yeah. They could contact me via Facebook or my email mharper26 at gmail.com. Um, I'll try to help. I'm no expert, but I think even just talking to someone else who's been through something can be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
and someone who's come through it and has the perspective and now is yeah successful just to say like, you know, stay the course, whatever it would be like, it'll happen. But also with, uh, you know, ideas on structure and ideas on organization in terms of progression, like you were talking about, I think could be useful. So mm-hmm. if you are somebody who's going through that, or you know, somebody who is dealing with some sort of injury, or it could possibly be an injury and they're not sure, uh, Michael is opening his, uh, his doors for, um, uh, contact and stuff like that. So I would imagine he would, he would think, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. Um, that's partially why I wanted him to do this episode. So if you want to get in contact with me for any reason, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but (laughs) if you want to go ahead and, uh, find me on Facebook or Instagram, search at that's not spit. Uh, you'll find me, um, if you would like to go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review, if you liked this episode, that would help other people be able to find the episode. And it's really cool to read nice reviews and stuff like that. So, uh, if that's on your heart to do so, I'd really appreciate that. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode and all of the episodes on the podcast. I think they sound really great and I hope you do too. And ultimately, and most importantly, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time.